An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our special guest is Matt Muscardi, who is one half of the podcast Business Pants, which punctures the pomposity around the way some ESG investing and business professionals talk about themselves and their companies. As a recent guest on that podcast, I can attest that stark-based fact is now a defined communication style. Matt's got substance as well as style. His day job is as the founder of FreeFloat, which provides an incredibly complete data set and analysis of the directors at public companies. Matt knows where if he speaks. He spent almost a decade at MSCI, helping to develop that financial service behemoth's ESG ratings model. He chaired the MSCI ESG Research Editorial Committee, sat on the MSCI Research Editorial Board, and wrote more than 100 investor papers, industry reports, and profiles while there. Prior to that, he worked at the Sustainability NGO Series, where he was part of a team providing resources, thought leadership, and data to pension funds with cumulative assets of some $10 trillion. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me, John. So what's your origin story? It's, it's easy to imagine you as the class clown in grade school, you know, or actually the class gesture, jester, because the role of the jesters speak truth to power by dressing it up in humor. But what's the real story? How did you become the person you were today and take this career path? I, I, so I was never the class jester. I, um, my dad was a community banker in Rhode Island. Um, but we always kind of had, uh, like a slight subversion to it, the things that we did growing up. It was like, um, I grew up Catholic, um, at, which I've since renounced, but my family ethos was a little bit, everything is bullshit. So on Easter, we would watch the last temptation of Christ, Martin Scorsese's movie that basically the Catholic church says was blasphemous. So it's all like little twists. And I think that pretty much set me up to work in a, the obscure corner of the finance universe. That was ESG years and years later. Um, uh, but yeah, there's not that much interesting about my, my sort of upbringing uh, other than I did like mild subversion. I don't know about that. I mean, some of your early adventures were as a rock star or at least the singer and guitarist in a bed. And that does seem like a popular calling for ESG professionals. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Sarah Murphy from the shareholder comments was also in a band. So what was the name of your band? Tell us about it. So I didn't know Sarah, but uh, Laura Nishikawa, who now leads ESG ratings at MSCI, was a classically trained pianist too. And she had synesthesia. She could see music as colors. Um, uh, look, uh, to say that a, a aspiring rock star might be a better way to say it. Uh, it, it was more like um, mediocre hard rock at CBGB's as my claim to fame. I have the tattoos to prove that I was in like a musician. The name of the band was the Vertical Gin Line, 
which was a misquote of a Tom Wolf um, uh, from the Bonfire of the Vanities, a Tom Wolf line, where he said vertical gin lane. And the guitarist thought it was clever. And really, we were just idiots. I mean, we were kids. We lo- we loved making music. But I do think, actually, the most interesting people in ESG or in finance, really, but in ESG were artists or were something else first because they, you, you they know, just see the world different. There is something to that. Steve Leidenberg, one of the grand old men of the field, was uh, now at Domini, but in fact, invented the KLD indices. Um, Steve was in theater till he was in his 40s. He was yeah. sort of an experimental playwright. Um, so what's your favorite tattoo since you mentioned you have tats? I have a tree that goes up my arm and onto my back, but my wife has probably my favorite tattoo. She has a she has a phoenix on her back, and it's her entire back is done. Um, another early year question: Your old MSCU profile says that you founded an ESG hedge fund. I don't think I've ever heard about that. When? What was it? What happened to it? So uh, there, there's a reason why you've never heard about it. So I, so I was in New York City. I'm playing music. I'm working as a paralegal. And I chased my girlfriend, now wife, out to California. I start working as a janitor at a financial advisory firm, um, helping them clean mold off the floor. Um, and in the course of doing it, it was a really small firm. They did non-traded assets. I um, talked to the owner, and he uh, had problems reporting to his clients their assets because it was all non-traded. So. I was like a Dungeons and Dragons kid, um, um, not like the super nerdy kind, but like the kind that played for fun and didn't tell anybody and then um, and then played music. So I built him a reporting model. And in doing it, I read all the prospectuses. And then I thought, well, this is pretty easy. And then I just got licensed and started selling it. And then once I was selling it, I met all these sort of like mutual fund you know, and fund managers and stuff. And I thought, well, what they do isn't that hard. This seems pretty easy. So then when I got laid off from the financial advisory firm, I just um, started working on a sort of macro sustainability ETF fund. And I started it, I live blogged it in 2007-ish. And then I launched it. I got angel and VC interest. I had like a pitch deck, the whole thing. And I launched, uh, opened the fund in July of 2008. So you haven't heard of it because by September of 2008, I was out of business because scrumming for capital for the next five years as the market picked itself back up just wasn't going to happen. But the live blog and the sort of like the all the research that I did ended up pushing me towards ESG sustainability. And I ended up getting a job at Ceres after that. Okay, so let's get to some serious stuff, although... I suspect your 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 trademark start will not leave you. Um, you spent almost a decade at MSCI. You helped develop this rating methodology. And I have to say it is now the dominant market leader with between 56% and 68% market share, depending on what you're measuring. In either event, it equates to being used by institutional investors with tens of trillions of dollars in assets under management. So let me, if, if I'm going to ask you this general question in a snarky, but hopefully somewhat lovable way that I think you would ask on a business pins, if the roles were reversed, you'd ask me, are ESG ratings somewhat bullshit? Since this is not business pins, this is outside. I will rephrase this in the non-snarky way. What are ESG ratings good for? How are they misused? And how should they be used? I think there is a lot of 
I mean, frankly, there's bullshit in ESG ratings, just like there's bullshit in any rating or any, you know, traditional financial metrics. Um, you know, like we would, I would get asked all the time when we were building the models, can you prove that these ratings generate alpha? And I always thought that the people who asked me um, basically didn't understand their jobs in some way, because there isn't a metric that consistently, no matter what, generates alpha, right? Like if I gave you any number from any any financial metric, it doesn't correlate to long-term returns or or even short-term returns in a lot of cases. So um, ESG ratings are the same. They're just a tool. And I think the biggest misuse and the biggest misconception of them is it solves something other than capitalism. It solves something other, like there's some misunderstanding that these ratings will save us from climate change or will protect us, you know, will alleviate human rights issues or things like that. They're a means to describe how management is likely to fuck something up when it comes to those issues. But it's not a means to stop those issues per se. That's actually in the hands of the user. If they want to stop those issues, A, don't use an ESG rating because the rating is like a high-level muddled signal. And B, go do something about it using the data that's in the ratings. Like you can't, you're not, you can't expect the rating does that or it even signals that. So they're not an answer. They, there is a lot of bullshit. And frankly, I know almost every model in the market, like I've deconstructed them all. And I can tell you that like, you know, 60 to 70% of them, there's bullshit. There's some big issue with any one of them. But to me, it's not A, different than a lot of traditional financial bullshit and B, just largely misused because it's misunderstood. So what's a good way to use an ESG rating? I mean, you know, MSCI has a nice business. A lot of these companies pay good money for data. People complain about the cost of data all the time. So you be the data efficiency expert. I'm already getting all these ratings. What's the best way I should use them? I mean, the the way we used them, like when we constructed them, the way we intended them to be used was to look at outliers. Like it's not about, you know, looking for, you know, if you're looking at like a some company that scores a 40 out of, you know, uh, on a scale of seven to unicorns, then like, it's not that useful. But like, if you're looking at the, the, the top end and the bottom end of these, of these companies, there's some signal that's valuable there in as much as you can say, all right, if I know how this rating is constructed, what it effectively is supposed to be telling me, because E and S and G it, are really just a horrible like the organizational principle we're, we're it's not a, like a a good style of creating a rating it's just bad organization to the extent that you know what's in there and you know how it's constructed at the top and the bottom there's signal there's signal that matters particularly at the bottom when you're looking at companies that do basically everything badly um there is some there's some merit to saying I mean, come on, at some point, can you do something right? Like every single metric, you look like an idiot, like you're, you're, you're not managing. So at some point, like we should ask the question, well, then what are you measuring? What are you doing well? And where are we going to get bitten? If you were creating these ratings today, would you do anything different? 
Well, yeah, I would, first of all, I would kill the acronym. Like I was, I, I, I'll tell you on the inside, um, I got in long arguments with the marketing team and the, the products team about calling them ESG ratings and the, using the acronym at all. There was a lot of IP involved around ESG, right? Like you sell an ESG rating and now all of a sudden you're saying, don't sell that. That's our moneymaker. But it's like the acronym has led us to this place where people say ESG investing or the ESG frameworks. And that's like saying, do we decimal system investing? Like it's, it's, it's just a bunch of data really badly organized and it's not a philosophy. It's not a style. It doesn't solve a thing. So if I were to redo it, I would absolutely 100% scrap the acronym and I'd focus on the component parts of it, right? Like each component part is, is interesting and there's signal in the component parts, but not when you roll it up into some pointless, you know, like, uh, you know, buckets. I also focus, uh, well, what we did like to solve this problem, because we started free flow after we left MSCI was I'd we wanted to solve not for random themes, right? Like ESG is, you know, climate change, privacy, human rights, labor issues. Like these are, I can, we can prattle on about a hundred thematic issues in the world from big to small, like, you know, e-waste versus waste versus toxic emissions. Like they're all built into ESG ratings, but they're, they're sort of picked as like, well, these are, Bigish issues or big issues, but they're issues we have data around so that we can say something rather than how are we going to solve these issues? So when we started free flow, we focused on people. We, fo we, we realized like well, the only, when you talk about climate change, climate change isn't, um, isn't just carbon. It isn't like counting the carbons in the air. It's who is incentivized to limit or reduce carbon because it's an existential threat to the planet. That's a totally different question. If you want to manage carbon, it's not like some ephemeral, you know, organization that's going to do it. It's the management team. It's a person. So someone's got to make a decision. Like we need to manage this. So when we left for free float, the, the, the thing that we did do differently was to focus on the people and their incentives rather than to focus on a random sort of amalgam of data mashed up into a poorly designed acronym. Yeah. In fact, I think your tagline for free float is investing isn't a what, it's a who. Um, yeah. So tell us how you do that. What does, to, here's your, your opportunity. I don't want an ad for free float, but I do want a description of what you've created and why you think it's important for investors. Uh, well, so, so the backdrop here is that Damien Rollis, who's the co-founder of free float with me, um, we, he worked at GMI and, um, he, he worked with Rick Marshall and Nell Minow and Bob Monks back in the day. So he's very long history in governance and governance is effectively the, the study of how people create structures that fail. I mean, it's, it's usually people in a structure and the structure you're testing, whether or not that structure will fail. I came from a background of 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 music and then sort of like modeling and esg and big data this is more my background but like i said my dad's a community banker i grew up sniffing for bullshit all the time like with these little subversions 
And I think my motivating factor was leveling the playing field. Now, free float, what we set out to do, um, and this is built into the podcast, no matter how snarky we are, we're constantly on the lookout for where people fail where where are the 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 natural human weaknesses the the our insane tendencies are are like quirks so when we set out to build something we ended up getting we bought scraped collected um borrowed whatever we could we have a database of 220,000 directors over 10 20 year spans um uh depending on the market covers 10,000 companies and we wanted to measure those people. So we look at their power, their influence. Uh, uh, we, we have boards and NEOs now. And we look at the power of each individual at, on that management tree. And we quantify it. Um, and then we look at um, their, how they perform. We, we create a performance attribution for individuals. The, the point being, we hold... You know, we, we in finance look at, we hold these companies to sort of performance markers all the time. Like they, they missed earnings. They, you know, what the, they missed revenue or they, they, they outperformed on, you know, something. We look at PE ratios. We, we look at all sorts of metrics and yet directors, the people and, and, and management teams, the people who run the companies who are the ones who are incentivized to manage stuff like ESG or non-ESG, just managing the company, they get 96% four votes from investors on average. This is the average. 90% of people think the earth is um, round, meaning 10% are not sure or don't think the earth is round. And yet investors agree at a higher rate that directors are qualified for their jobs. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but we wanted to crack that. We wanted to get into like, okay, how do we measure the people, their quirks, the way they think, like who the alpha is, and then what the outcomes of their existence are. Did they add any value? Did they not? Did they oversee something that we care about or not? So that, that was the genesis of it for us. And it was not linear, but actually it's a natural progression, I think. Interesting. I mean, anyone who's ever been in a company, in a board, understands that individuals actually have agency and power, particularly on the board. I mean, legally, the board has no power except collectively, but there are individuals who do influence things, and CEOs. And, um, and yet we do tend to think about, I'm investing in Microsoft as opposed right. to, I'm investing in the board of Microsoft to do the right thing around what such an Adela is initially suggesting. And, and are you getting any, any take up on this or people uh, buying it? Uh, what's the I new mean, action? They are. Yeah. There's a lot of interest. There's the early interest is always from activists, right? Like, cause there's a new data set. Um, and this is a specific data set about the people that, you know, on boards, they may want to flip. So if you identify a company that, underperforming or has higher breakup value um, or whatever your activist thesis is, then usually the next step is, oh, how do we, you know, who do we flip? Like, you know, we want to flip the board. Who should we flip? Who should we target? How should we target this company? How should we engage? So there's natural sort of interest there. It ends up being um, like a, a bigger set of use cases than even that, because one of the things that we see is you know, there's the natural sort of engagement use case for stewardship teams or proxy voting um, because 
98% of what a stewardship team does. And we like to say, look, you bought an asset for, for cash flows, but you also bought a vote, right? Um, and you, you, you hire this team to represent you in the board. So um, we're giving them data on how they might vote. And 98% of their voting, proxy voting, is directors. Like there's very few companies who see shareholder proposals. So there's a huge gap when ISS or Glass-Lewis or proxy advisors effectively say, you know, nearly 100% of the time, just vote for every manager. There's a gap. There's no data there. There's not really interesting things unless like, you know, someone wants to make a wave or be an activist. But we want to give data that says like life is a bell curve. Half of these people, by definition, have to be below average. It's not Garrison Keillor and, you know, um, uh, Prairie Home Companion where everyone is strong and above average. So we're giving metrics around that. The surprising uptake has been around things like diversity, right? People add, want to add women or diverse cohorts to boards. And right now that's a check the box exercise. Like, let's add a woman, check. Let's add a black person, check. But what we're saying when we did sort of this um, influence, these influence metrics is, well, if you add a woman, but they have no influence on the board, what did you really accomplish? Were you accomplishing what you meant to accomplish, which is changing the way the board strategically thinks? So we provide these metrics that say things like, your board has 30% women on it, but they have 20% influence. That is a power gap. A neg like That's a negative 10% power gap. You're not fulfilling. You've achieved representation. You've achieved diversity, but not inclusion. Right. Like you're missing an element here. So there's all these sort of funkier use cases and I won't call them funky, but like a different set of use cases when it comes to portfolio construction and sort of analytics that we're seeing evolve from clients who have who've bought from us who are seeing things as we are in D with them. Like, oh, here is there's this interesting thing I saw. What do you think about this? And it's a back and forth. And we're realizing there, there are even there are other use cases that are less obvious that are popping up the more people use them. One use case I'd love to see is for executive search firms to use your data, because I got to tell you, I've been voting my proxies, my personal proxies, and one of the frightening things you mentioned, diversity, um, I have just a personal rule against voting against directors who are overboarded, meaning they serve on, on, on more boards I think they can legitimately give attention to. And there is a disproportionate number of diversity board directors who are overboarded because people mm -hmm. just go back to the same people over and over and over again. So if there are any executive recruiters out there, you know, go buy free floats data and find some, some real directors. I, honestly, um, we did a paper, um, on, on gender. We called it the glass ceiling inside the glass ceiling. And in the, in the paper, it's on our website. There's a, we did a bit on the recycling rates where we found that like being a woman has a higher recycling rate than being a man. And um, in the S&P 500, we have really good diversity data from a group called Denominator. If you don't know Denominator, they're awesome. They have great data. Um, and we are partnered with them. But we found recycling rates of directors who are diverse cohorts are even higher, to your point, right? Like, so, um, yeah, there's, there's lots of fun. Well, <laughs> I don't know if that's fun, but um, there's lots of interesting sort of quirks to the data that you see when you start to actually lay it out. So you and I have been doing this for a long time, and obviously you think that one of the things 
that people pay too little attention to is who's on the board. Let me reverse it to you. What areas in the field or what questions get entirely too much attention? I think it's a framing question. I mean, like we talk a lot about environmental issues and rightly so. It's not that it gets too much attention, but I feel like we talk about it like Exxon is destroying the world. No, Exxon is the shell, right? It's it's Darren Woods and the executive team and the engine number one directors who all voted for the pioneer acquisition like a couple of weeks ago, right? Like these are the people who are making the strategic decisions that it's okay to continue to, you know, uh, to leverage that business model without, you know, having a transition plan that actually isn't vague or useless. So it's not so much like, in my mind, what gets too much attention. It's what doesn't get enough attention is every time you read something about how a company screws up like a, a Me Too issue, a climate issue, a labor issue, we don't ask, uh, we don't like think to hold the company accountable. We ask immediately, who are the people there? Who are the decision makers? And how can we know that these decision makers could have made this decision? Is there a way, like, it sounds a little, I don't mean it to sound this sort of creepy, but like minority report. Like when you're hiring a director, what are the what's the probability that this person is going to be the person who helps you avoid that? And avoidance is impossible to measure because it's measuring a null, right? Like you, you can't see the thing that didn't happen. But if we're only asking the question before, you know, after it happens, who do we hold accountable? Then we're doing it wrong. Like we need to put in place it's like a sports team. You want to put in place the team that you think is going to score the most points next year and not because they scored the most points last year, right? Like, so we want to be, get those behaviors down. So it's not that something gets too much attention. It's really for us something that doesn't get enough attention, which is who did you hire to represent you? And are they, are they representing your interests, particularly on the board or on, on management teams? Let's move from free float to your other activity. I recently had the pleasure, I think it was a pleasure. It was definitely a pleasure. Of being on your podcast, which is, shall we say, a bit different than this one. The name of the podcast is Business Pants. Mm -hmm. And its tone is wonderfully snarky. Its goal is to, and I quote, make business and investing news suck less for <laughs> real people and the investor curious, end quote. So where does the name business pants come from? Why'd you decide to adopt snark as the dominant ethos? And most importantly, is it accomplishing your goals or are you having fun? I mean, that we're definitely having fun. I, look, we, this is how we talk. This is when we worked at MSCI and I was there for almost 10 years. This is how Damien and I would talk on phone calls. Like this is like water cooler conversation. It was sort of the insane inanities and and banalities of corporate life mixed in with the insane human condition in capital markets. So business pants that the term when we were when we were banding about what to call the podcast, Damien when he was at GMI and MSCI in the Portland office, used to joke about the sort of like standard issue corporate um outfit which was like a button down a, a light blue button down with khakis for men 
And he would giggle all the time with his colleagues there about the idea of someone spilling coffee on their standard issue and having wet khakis all day, right? Like that, that like wet spot on them. So when we went to go name it, this idea just sort of stuck of the, the, the joke, the inside joke to us is sort of like you, you wake up in the morning, you put on your business pants, you're, you're about to go out and be a big, important corporate person right up until you get a coffee stain on your crotch. And then you spend the rest of the day, like uncomfortable in your, in your business pants. And we, as a podcast, that's the thing we focus on. We focus about on that sort of uncomfortable thing, that very human thing that is, that happens to CEOs, executives, boards, you know, everywhere. And we make that sort of our, our thing. So yeah, we have constant fun. Um, I think, I don't know if we're accomplishing our goal because our goal is very much like it's, if what we do at free float, what we do with the podcast is very much our worldview. It's a, it's a, it's like data around who people are and, um, and then conversation about the absurdities of humanity and, and how it, how capital markets are sort of like an absurd narrative that we all, a myth that we all believe in. To give the listeners of this podcast a, a sense, um, what would be a perfect business pants story or thing that you would comment on? What's an example of something in the last six months or a year that you just thought was, God, it, it's like when Saturday Night Live has the perfect thing to make fun of. What is the perfect business story that you found that you just keep coming back to? Oh man, there's so there's a lot. We spend a lot of time talking about um like glass cliff type scenarios. Um like one thing we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of weeks and we're actually going to have a guest on from Australia to talk about this is Qantas and what's going on at Qantas because there's this absurdity where um so the prior CEO at Qantas um basically, you know, uh, bilks his employees out of money and there's all sorts of issues with the, the company and leaves before he he says he's going to leave. And then he leaves before he, he says he's going to leave because he knows there's a par parliamentary inquiry coming. They put a woman in charge and the poor woman gets grilled. The woman comes out and says, I apologize. Right. And then the male chair who is there for, you know, a decade comes out and says, we are sorry. Right. So we love, we love, and we constantly glom onto these little language like markers where the white guy who was in charge, who had the party and got paid says, oh, we're so sorry. And the woman who they put in place says, I am sorry. I take personal responsibility for the fact that these jamooks just made a mess of your Airbnb, right? Like we do stories like that are everywhere they happen all the time we focus on them um but we focus on stuff like some of our favorite stuff are like from the metaverse like selling metaverse real estate and then taking it to the nth degree like why not metaverse airplane rides where like you know you're you can be slightly more comfortable and you don't have a bag fee but you can still sit down with a with a headset on for six hours and be you know like uh, like it's all of our stories sort of revolve around sort of those little absurdities. I, I There's probably a hundred examples and Damien's going to be pissed that I didn't come up with some of his favorite, but those are the ones that jumped to mind. You know, the Qantas case is interesting. Um, 
I have a friend, Nicole Sanford. She, she used to be in governance at Deloitte, and she's now the CEO of a uh, small cap public company, Aspira Women's Health, that does some important work in, um, in diagnostics for women's health issues. And she was commenting, there's recently been a report that there are more women CEOs nowadays. And she said, of course, because times are hard, interest rates are going up. Yes. Women only get the jobs when, when, when there aren't men to give them. Men don't want them. This, this sort of, you know, you're giving us the job as a glass cliff to run into the fire, into the danger. And then when it's all over again, um, you know, there'll be some men to take the, take the job. Um, so the Qantas example resonates right now with uh, less, less um, pointedly, but with a lot of other situations. Yep. Let's finish with uh, some short questions and answers. How do you relax? Uh, well, I have three kids, so I don't. Doesn't that mean you need to relax more? <laughs> it does. It does. We're fortunate enough and lucky enough to live on a lake in central Connecticut. So we relax, we, we take, and there's no like motorboats out there or anything like that. It's like, a um, take a canoe out, go sit by the lake and just, you know, just chill, just think. We talked about your early, um, wannabe music career. What music do you listen to nowadays? I've been listening to a lot of, um, I, I listen to weird like whatever Spotify throws at me, but, um, because of the, the, my, I have three girls. Um, they like a lot of girl pop. They hate daddy's music. Um, which was like, you know, bad brains and metal and, you know, like chopper rap. So now I'm listening to a lot of like, you know, indie, like quirky indie girl rock is what I'm listening to. Any particularly like there's a band called hop along. Um, uh, that I've been listening to like on repeat, they're like a weird, it's exactly what I just described. That's what I've been listening to. What are you reading right now? I finished, um, Sapiens by Yuval Harari. So right now I'm actually, I'm reading a book for, we're having a podcast upcoming with Allison, um, Allison Taylor, and she wrote a book called higher ground. And it's about like, you know, ESG kind of stuff. Um, so I'm in the middle of that. Allison's good. You'll enjoy it. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? Provincetown. Provincetown, Massachusetts. No doubt. Mass- it's like the greatest place in the universe. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Oh. This is like inside the actor's studio. Um, Thank you. (laughs) What would I tell them? Uh, I would tell them, I would ask him a question and it would be a self-serving question because I would say, do you know who you own in your portfolio? We're talking about everyone in the world and you're just going to bring it back to business. No, no personal philosophy. I'm I'm looking for, I'm looking for phone calls. I, what, what, what? Like, what well, a great way to end it with someone who's, 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 you know, half serious and half. Um, honestly, if you're not like, you know, 
Ricky Gervais is one of my favorite comedians. Say what you will about, you know, his type of comedy. But what I love about him is he constantly says, if you're not having a laugh, what's the point? Right. And and I think that's very true. I think we take ourselves really, really seriously all the time, particularly in finance and capital markets. And the fact is, if you can't laugh at yourself and you can't you can be serious, but have a laugh. Maybe that's what I would say if if we're going to do the like, uh, you know, I'm at the pearly gates question. Thanks. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukomnik and our special guest, Matt Miscardi. Um, as you can tell, Matt takes his, he actually takes his day job and even the podcast pretty seriously, but doesn't take himself that seriously. Matt, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukonik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.